I I gotta do it. But I don't I don't want to I don't want to go kill people. I don't even. Okay. Okay. Prison it is. <laughs> Fuck this. It's 1965. Hippies, dope, and acid all among us. Bell-bottom trousers, suede fringe jackets, and t-shirt glasses. You know the ones worn by John Lennon? Flower print on the side of every car, van, and wall. No one's going to remember the blood on the records, the fake smile for the emergency marriage, the breath that was lost from avoiding bullets, all that was in the name of make love, not war. The 60s wasn't just hippies smoking weed, but it was also the time of the anti-war movement, a movement that felt like a massive cooking pot on a cast iron stove, gas turned up high with the knob pulled off. The contents inside bubbling and boiling, with a new ingredient added in every minute. Civil rights, students' rights, women's rights, GI rights, all being added and stirred together. But how was it that this mass movement, a combination of rights and actors, all opposing the war, became an effective and successful coalition. Hold on. First, we need some context. And to help me, here are some experts. My name is Amy Rutenberg. I am an assistant professor of history at Iowa State University. I am a historian of the modern United States. And Dr. Robbie Lieberman. I am a professor at Kennesaw State University in Georgia, and I'm a professor of American Studies. The Vietnam War was a prolonged military conflict that started as an anti-colonial war against the French and evolved into a Cold War confrontation between international communism and free market democracy. The Democratic Republic of Vietnam in the North was supported by the Soviet Union, China and other communist countries while the United States and its anti-communist allies backed the Republic of Vietnam in the South. The anti-war movement itself was messy. It was a collection of sub-movements including student, civil and women's rights, who all agreed on opposition of the war, but all for their different reasons. Politics was mixed with lifestyle, religion was mixed with self-interest. It was messy, but it worked. And it grew. It grew to become a force which started off peaceful, educating why the war was bad, peaceful sit-ins. But like the war, it intensified and it grew to become violent. The size of the protests against Vietnam did indicate a break from Cold War thinking and the kind of knee-jerk patriotism that had dominated up until then. Following Johnson's increase of US troop presence and bombing campaigns in Vietnam, the war became a focal point for the movement, and acts of civil disobedience became popular. The draft in particular became a pinnacle symbol of opposition within the movement. Mandatory conscription of military service has never been a new thing during times of war. Many men of all races and social classes have volunteered or enlisted for military service either because they generally wanted to serve or because they were under pressure from the draft. The draft has been necessary because most American men didn't want to interrupt their peaceful lives or put themselves in harm's way. However, the draft was different this time, met with an immense resentment among the movement, in particular students, who saw the hypocrisy of the government, that they were legally old enough to fight and die, but not old enough to drink or even vote. The more calls to the draft, the more opposition it met, with more and more activists seeing this as an infringement of their rights, whichever right that be 
Within college campuses, students in retaliation would undertake various acts of civil disobedience, such as sit-ins, street protests, which would often turn violent, and even burning their draft cards. Hey Siri, what is civil disobedience? Civil disobedience is the active, professed refusal of a citizen to obey certain laws, demands, orders, or commands of a government. By some definitions, civil disobedience has to be non-violent to be called civil. Hence, civil disobedience is sometimes equated with peaceful protests or non-violent resistance. Fundamentally shaped by Henry Thoreau and Martin Luther King Jr., the two defined and changed the idea of the American protest. Both men believed that individuals had a right and obligation to oppose and disobey injustice, invoking the idea of non-violent, direct action in a collective manner. Both men recognized the inherent issues of the majority rule in the democratic society, and through failing to look within themselves, correcting themselves, were unjust, calling for the individuals to combat the injustices by the majority. King defined a practitioner of civil disobedience as one who breaks the law that conscience tells him is unjust. And who willingly accepts community, while both advocated for the use of non-violent measures, they acknowledge that from non-violence, violence may result, as the majority does not often step aside peacefully. Brent Powell observes that Thoreau was not afraid of violence, and that, as he quotes, the withdrawal for fear of violence would cause more psychological harm to the protester than the physical harm he may be exposed to. Those who engage in civil disobedience seek to highlight the minority struggle, establish legitimacy and power, and exploit the weaknesses of their adversaries, which is exactly what happened within the anti-war movement. We can see much of the civil disobedience described by Thoreau and King within the acts made by protesters in the anti-war movement. Many activists undertook non-violent acts of civil disobedience. However, violent acts of civil disobedience were not uncommon as the movement progressed. With many protesters having confrontations with the authorities, the various acts of civil disobedience from these men would include the illegal march on the Pentagon, property damage, dumping blood on draft records, and shutting down induction centers. Burning the draft card, potentially the most significant act of disobedience in this time, was a symbol of protest against the government. Burning your draft card was the extreme, which got people into a lot of trouble. They would be. Find and put in jail for that. What was considered an illegal act did not phase the thousands that destroyed their cards. Possession of the card proved that the card bearer was compliant with the selective service system. So to burn it was to signify unity in the opposition of the system that supported the war. What made this an act of civil disobedience was the fact that burning this little piece of paper was actually a criminal offence, as all eligible men were legally required to carry their draft cards with them at all times. Additionally, following the Draft Card Mutilation Act 1965, it became an offence to destroy or mutilate one's draft card. Gradually, as the war continued, there was a growing divide between protest and resistance of the war. This became apparent between the draft dodger, the draft resistor, and the conscientious objector. Hey Siri, what is a conscientious objector? A conscientious objector is an individual who has claimed the right to refuse to perform military service on the grounds of freedom of thought, conscience, or religion. In some countries, conscientious objectors are assigned to an alternative civilian service as a substitute for conscription or military service. One notable conscientious objector, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali's case is really interesting for a number of reasons. As a member of the Nation of Islam, 
he was arguing that he deserved conscientious objector status. Famously saying, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Conscientious objector laws said you could only get that status if you objected to all war. And Muslims don't object to all war ever, but within the Nation of Islam, they were talking about certainly objecting to war, except in certain circumstances and so on. And in fact, Nation of Islam members were the second largest group of men denied conscientious objector status. So Muhammad Ali, I think looking back on it, had very clear grounds for his conscientious objector claim. But because of racism and a number of reasons, and the of course, the fact he was also a boxer. That was not accepted within the court system. But he was also very clearly not a shirker. He wasn't someone who was afraid. He had political reasons for not wanting to serve in the Vietnam War. Muhammad Ali was roundly criticized by the white press and by the white community in the United States. Other famous draft dodgers include Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. See, the draft wasn't black and white. There was a lot of gray. People resisted the draft for many different reasons. That it was immoral, that the draft was shrouded in inequity, opposition over citizenship and responsibility, religious grounds, and the list goes on. But what we do start to see is that there was also a separate conflict, and that was embedded within the draft, which reveals a social and economic divide. Again, it wasn't just students opposing the war. There were also women, serving soldiers, veterans, who all opposed it. This again further exemplifies the complexity of this mass movement. The opposition to the draft was real, with large protests springing up across the country, such as the Chicago demonstrations, which centered around the Democratic National Convention. Self-interested draft avoidance soon evolved into morally driven draft resistance, which grew the movement. Draft resistors, they were trying to make a political statement frequently about the wrongness of America's goals in Vietnam, and they did engage in civil disobedience. While the latter operated more privately and opposed the war on the basis that military service was a choice. Draft dodgers would often seek legal methods of avoiding the draft. There are all different kinds of ways that individuals looked to avoid being drafted that were legal. Such as marrying young, entering particular occupations, going back to school, joining the National Guard or the ROTC. What these men did was that they would take advantage of the legal loopholes available to them. One thing about the draft dodger which can be drawn is the connection to equity, or their lack of. Military service was not distributed equally or equitably across the spectrum. Draft dodging was only really available to men who had the means and access to all the different types of legal deferments. In any system of selective military service, there are always going to be deferments. A deferment is a way to prevent the man from being drafted, and it's legal. The explicit and implicit links to race are exemplified through the fact that mainly white, middle-class, well-educated boys were able to dodge the draft and have more opportunities given to them than that of the working-class people of colour. Working-class, primarily people of colour, have a much, much harder time accessing those same deferments. There was definitely inequity in, in who was able to get out of the draft. Those in the lower classes did not have the same tools available to them that the elite and middle class men possessed. These men were at an obvious disadvantage compared to their white counterparts. 
middle-class men, uh, the people who could afford college, the people who could afford to support their families in a particular way, ended up being targeted for deferment. This shows the draft, as Amy quotes, was a paraxis that specifically targeted certain segments of the population for military service, while releasing others from the same obligation. And opposition was not only about war, but equity within the systematic racism. Many working class people did try and avoid the draft. I'm not debating that. What I am saying, though, is how there was an entrenched inequity within it. The system didn't purposefully discriminate based on race and class, but it did discriminate based on race and class. Further issues of race were seen within the military itself, whereby men from poorer backgrounds were more likely to serve in the military, face combat and die in the line of duty. The working class was very disproportionately sent to Vietnam, and I would say that they were punished for being poorer. Imperialist arguments arose from the war. Racist slurs from propaganda were used to promote the U.S. invasion of Vietnam. The dehumanization of people made it easier for the U.S. to slaughter thousands of people. Racist murders become a topic of imperialist inquisition following the My Lai massacre. People start to hear about the damage being done to Vietnamese civilians, being removed from their villages and put in these so-called strategic hamlets. Muhammad Ali argued that my conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some people hungry in the mud for big, powerful America. He said, and shoot them for what? They never lynched me. They didn't put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. Shoot them for what? How can I shoot them poor people? He and other activists at the time talked about as an imperialist endeavor to use men of color against other people of color in this desire to conquer this land that didn't want American conquest. And so that was a more and more common political critique. Ali was making a reference to the civil rights issues that were going on in the U.S. at the time, in that there was a greater war that needed to be won there than in Vietnam. Other arguments about how the war was inequitable was how the war was sexist. Feminism during this time was a growing movement. There were feminist concerns both in the U.S. and for those within Vietnam, insofar that the war was exploiting Vietnamese women, such as media representation of the Vietnamese women being prostitutes, in addition to the physical and sexual assault that they were being exposed to by some U.S. soldiers. Concerns for women in the U.S. were that there was a lack of participation by them. Fighting in the war was a duty of citizenship, something which men had. The state has the right to call on its citizens if required for its defense. It only calls on men. Through not being able to participate, women were not satisfying this element of citizenship and were thus not citizens. Highlighting the inequity between man and woman and how women were seen as second-class citizens to men. It's that relationship between the rights and the obligations of citizenship. Finally, what newly emerged from the Vietnam War was the assumption about men's roles as citizens and in society. Newfound ideas of masculinity were created. They were not shirkers. They were not not patriotic. They were trying to, to exercise their masculine prerogative to choose and to push the United States to live up to its own stated theoretical ideals. Previously, it was seen as masculine and an obligation to serve one's country. However, due to the increase in revolt against the war, it was now considered masculine to stay at home and provide for the family. 
The concept of masculinity deeply changed during the anti-war movement, as well as the perception of serving one's country. Not fighting actually is an act of citizenship and is, more importantly, an act of masculine citizenship. We see that the nuanced ideas about gender, race, sexuality and social class shaped public policy, changing the way the anti-war movement perceived choice and compulsion, rights and responsibilities in democracy. The student movement, a massive opposition to the war, was fierce and sought for radical change. The movement and students were extremely important. The student movement starts with an interest in all kinds of other things. They don't start out protesting the war. The movement existed everywhere, from elite schools to local movements, and mixed national and local issues. Students wanted to be heard on issues that clearly touched their lives, their campus, their right to express themselves and have a good time. As time progressed and through more expressive politics, the student movement gradually shifted towards the opposition of the war. For example, within Southern Illinois University, the student movement grew from three predominant strains, the student rights movement, the new left and the party culture, which eventually came together en masse with the emergence of the large anti-war memoratoriums from 1969. Additionally, the use of drugs such as weed and acid brought activists together and helped create a strong sense of community and kinship whereby the present issues were discussed. Through the introduction of drugs, new activists were brought in, thus expanding the movement, ultimately causing overlaps between the student movement and this party culture. So it was a really, really diverse movement. The creation of the SDC, the Socialist Discussion Club, brought the leftist strain into the student movement and highlighted the paternalism that the university and the government had over individuals. But people then begin to question what they're being told by the government. Within SIU, Southern Illinois University, anti-war concerns gradually began to seep into the movement, whereby the social aspect of smoking weed and dropping acid allowed for anti-government topics to be discussed. This sense of community thus increased with many people finding a common enemy, the government, while also making friends. These people came together in unity with the objective to fight a common foe. Within many student movements, there seems to be a triggering event that causes the war to become a focal point. Within SIU, it was the Vietnam Studies Center. The center was intended for the economic and social development of Vietnam and its post-war reconstruction but it was enshrined in neocolonialistic ideologies, to which many at SIU opposed. With the war now becoming a focus, the Vietnam Studies Center saw persistent organizing and continued activity of local anti-war and anti-imperialist forces, bringing the three strains together. All these students started out being quite obedient. So they held rallies only when and where they were approved. They engaged with administrators at every opportunity. And they put a big emphasis on dialogue. But then there was immense frustration as the war dragged on and nothing seemed to make a difference. So then they would take steps like marching around the campus to protest. They held sit-ins, sometimes on busy street corners. All of that are, you know, escalating the civil disobedience. Some of these protests became violent and saw the university property being destructed. You have students who go in and trash administrative offices, throw things around, break windows at local businesses. Though claiming to be in the name of the anti-war movement, it could be argued that this would also be a battle of individual freedom for the right and the ability to demonstrate, especially due to the increase in police and National Guard presence which were brought in to curtail protests and riots, 
sometimes even infringing on peaceful protests. Not dissimilar to the events at Kent State, which saw that when severe force is used against demonstrators, they will become radicalised in their attitudes and behaviour, thus exasperating the issue they were trying to solve. It's a great indicator of what an enormous gap there was between what the students thought they were doing and how the authorities viewed them. Raymond Admick and Jerry Lewis hold that students who have been subjected to social control violence are more likely to hold favourable opinions toward violence and its employment as a means of social protest to achieve change. And this can certainly be identified in the events that took place in SIU and Kent State. The circumstances at Kent State really weren't all that unique, and it could have happened at a lot of different places. Now, with the anti-war focus, the student movement began to grow, becoming more angry and more intense. What can be questioned is the reasoning behind the mass growth of the students' movement against the war. Was it in the name of make love, not war? Or was there a social element that influenced people, that escalated people's actions without valid cause? This idea by some activists to close down schools to send a message to the state and nation could actually be regarded as counterintuitive, as student activism relied on open schools where dialogue and further organisation could be made. As the movement got bigger, the true meaning and purpose of the movement got lost. The politics of the movement was being overshadowed by this social movement and this trend to be an activist. The student movement was messy and big and full of many different rights and subgroups, all grappling at the chance to be heard and make a change. There were so many reasons to oppose the war, which makes finding one dominant motive hard to find. There are so many claims on what brought this war to the end or how much impact the anti-war movement had. I think all of those things mattered. So, back to my question at the beginning. How was it that this mass movement, a combination of rights all opposing the war, became an effective and successful coalition in ending the war? My answer? I don't know.